The day is breaking. Do you see by the light of the sunrise what we proudly saluted at last night's fall? Its stars, its stripes, streamed yesterday above fierce combat as a symbol of victory. The splendor of battle on the march toward liberty. Throughout the night they proclaimed, we march on to defend it. Oh, tell me, does its starry beauty still wave above the land of the free, the sacred flag? That is the English translation of the Spanish translation of the United States National Anthem, The Star-Spangled Banner. Hearing it in that form, which is really the same ideas in more modern language, helps set the stage for the story of how this poem slash song came about. Maybe just as interesting as where the anthem came from is the question, why have an anthem in the first place? You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 34, The Star-Spangled Banner. All right, so getting to know you question. What are your, and I know this holiday is very important to you. So what are your favorite 4th of July traditions? Well, so um, my 4th of July is, it's got to take place in my hometown in Eager, Arizona. There've been a few 4th of July's in my life that I haven't been there for. Um, and that's always really hard. Like I, I really enjoy being, um, especially as a young person, being in, in town for the 4th of July. So I'd come back from college for it. Um, interestingly, I think one of the only 4th of July's, uh, well, I've missed three 4th of July's because I was in Guatemala, two of them while I was a missionary. And then one, I actually went back to Guatemala and I happened to be over the 4th of July. Um, but other than that, I've pretty much been, um, at my parents' house for the 4th of July every other year. And every single year, every single year. Yeah. Wow. There might have been one that it didn't happen, but I would be, I can't think of one. And, um, so in my town, we do a very big parade that's kind of attended by a few towns around. Um, and then we also get people who just come from all over the place to see the parade. Cause it's just kind of an old fashioned 4th of July parade that a lot of people don't do or haven't seen before. So we get a lot of people from Albuquerque and Phoenix that come. Um, and then my family, after the parade, we always have a, a, um, big family barbecue and then there's fireworks and there's um in my town there's a fourth of july rodeo which is a really big deal that's fun to go to and so it's very um very structured my fourth of july is pretty the the day of the fourth of july is pretty structured and um oh and there's a of course in the morning we go to my family goes to this like neighborhood flag raising it's like at sunrise and we go and there's like some songs and like some short speeches um often it's people who like you know have some sort of story to tell like we've had people who recently naturalized who kind of talked and maybe somebody who's um served in the military and then afterwards and there's usually like i don't know 200 people at this thing and then they we have a big breakfast afterwards the family who puts it on makes like 10,000 pancakes and everybody just (laughs) hangs out and eats breakfast and so Fourth of July, yeah, very structured, very, um, and a very big, very big deal. I actually didn't get to do a lot of it this last year either because I was studying for the bar exam. And so I kind of laid low that Fourth of July. And that was, that was a bummer too, because the exam was in like 
you know, 10 days. So I was in crisis mode, but yeah, that's my, that's my 4th of July. It's been the same my whole life. I am thrilled because barring any unforeseen circumstances, I am going to be attending 4th of July with you this year. And I am just beside myself elated at the idea of going to eager and seeing what 4th of July has to offer. I can't wait. It's going to be great. Uh, speaking of that, my mom texted me today and said if we have any uh, menu suggestions, she's taking requests. So uh, <laughs> you think of anything? So. <laughs> I will uh, get my gears turning. That sounds okay. great. <laughs> um, so my 4th of July, growing up, I always remember like we had these close family friends who most 4th of Julys, we would go to their river house on the James River. And it was very classic, like everyone's swimming all day. There's burgers and hot dogs on the grill and like baked beans and chips and stuff. And, you know, everyone's out until late at night and then fireworks at at night. And it seems very uh, standard, but that's that's my Fourth of July, really. I mean, that was what it always was growing up. And nowadays, I don't I don't think I. uh really do much for it my friends often throw a pool party i'll go to that or whatever but it's pretty low-key actually so not nearly as entrenched as uh the (laughs) celebrations of eager so i'm looking forward to that yeah we'll have to decide if you have you ever been to a rodeo i have never been to a rodeo before hey we might have to go to the rodeo (laughs) oh i'm down is that where like there's a lasso and horses (laughs) And the cowboy like grabs one. That is, <laughs> that's that's essentially accurate. <laughs> I hope that's what it is. We'll see, um, listeners, if that's what it, a rodeo actually is. We'll get back to you on that. There's a cowboy and some horses and a lasso, and then the cowboy grabs one. <laughs> grabs the lasso, grabs a cow. It's unclear, but unclear. Yeah. <laughs> So today, as our episode right before the 4th of July holiday, we decided we wanted to do um, today's episode about the United States National Anthem. It has a really fun backstory that I think a lot of people probably don't know. It's got other verses that a lot of people probably didn't know existed. Um, And we also wanted to discuss the idea of um why what like the idea of national anthems themselves why do we have them um and where do they come from because it's kind of a if you stop and think about it it's sort of a strange um you know it's not a given that we all just have a song that everyone in in a country sings and so um we'll we'll actually start there otana will talk to us a little bit about where do these things come from and uh why do we do them yeah we may think of I mean, I don't know about you. We made the national anthem as an idea, as being kind of an old thing, maybe as old as the countries are or whatever. Hmm. But they're really kind of a newer phenomenon, uh, speaking specifically about the 19th century here. At the early 1800s, there were several nations that got national anthems because they got their independence and decided it's time to have a national song speaking about Argentina, Peru, and Belgium, which all got their independence right around 1830. Hmm. France had the famous July Revolution, where they overthrew 
the monarch Charles X. Um, that was a very historic moment for France, and they recognized that by implementing their national anthem, which is called La Marseillaise. And La Marseillaise has a fascinating backstory, by the way, which I fully recommend, as always, reading the Wikipedia page on it because it's very interesting. Um, if you want to talk about the oldest national anthem in the world, having both music and lyrics, that award is going to go to the Netherlands. Theirs was written sometime in the late 1500s. Huh. Um, and almost even old is Japan's national anthem, which doesn't have as old of music, but the lyrics come from a poem that dates back to at least before the 1100s. And then it was set into music sometime in the late 1800s. So relative to that, as we're going to see, actually, the American national anthem is quite young comparatively. Yeah. So I think that's a pretty interesting story. National anthems, like characteristically, tend to be kind of march-like or hymn-like. You know, maybe they're kind of reverent and contemplative, or maybe they're more like resounding and everyone's stomping their feet and something like that. Uh, there was a note on Wikipedia about the idea that Latin American and European anthems tend to be kind of ornate and operatic, whereas African and Middle Eastern ones tend to be more simplistic. I think that's quite a subjective idea, actually. And maybe as we listen to some examples, you'll be able to agree or disagree with Wikipedia on that. Yeah. Um, so let's listen to some examples. La Marseillaise is the French national anthem. This is such a fascinating national anthem. It is a tune that you probably already know, even though you don't think you do, or maybe you're from France and you're very, very familiar <laughs> with this tune. And the arrangement that's commonly performed is actually an arrangement done by Hector Berlioz, who's a very famous composer. It's almost like if we had our national anthem composed by like, you know, John Williams, the Star Wars guy or something yeah. like that. Very, very famous guy doing this. I remember thinking <clears throat> that um, Austria's national anthem was written by Mozart. Oh, yeah, I think that's right. Or maybe Haydn, one of those guys. Let me um, yeah, let's... let's, let's yeah, it's Mozart. That, Mozart wrote it. Oh, okay. Sure. Haydn wrote it for another one, though. So some people Haydn. have famous people write their national anthems. That's kind of cool. Yeah, that's neat. And Berlioz is one of those guys. Um, his arrangement really calls for all the stops to be pulled out. It's just a bonkers arrangement. You have an operatic soprano singing, a full chorus, there's a full orchestra, and even a children's choir. This is all written <laughs> into the score. Where do you just get a children's choir? Like, I don't know. But yeah, let's listen to it real quick. Soldats, ils viennent jusque dans vos bras, égorgez vos fils, vos compagnes, aux hommes de citoyens, parlez 
Had you heard that before? Yes, definitely. I don't think um, I would have been able to tell you that's what it was called. But as soon as you hear the, I heard the music, I was like, oh yeah, I've heard this tune. 100%, right? Yeah. yeah. Huh? It's so rousing, right? Yeah. Very, very exciting. Um, so yeah, that's a cool one. Um, we're also going to take a listen to the national anthem of South Africa. This one's pretty cool because in one song, you hear five different languages. And those languages are Osa, a click language, Zulu, Sasutu, Afrikaans, and English. And these are just the five most widely spoken of South Africa's 11 languages in total. (laughs) They, They got five of them in there, amazingly. Let's give this a listen as well. in South Africa can speak all five of those languages. I don't know the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, how many languages the average South African person has, but yeah, that's a great question. That was, that's a good question. That was pretty thought, cool. Yeah, I do know that there are um, like just, I can think of a few examples which are obviously not indicative of um, everybody, but like Trevor Noah, the famous comedian and talk show host is from South Africa and he speaks like six languages. And when I've heard him talk about it, he talks about it like it was pretty, that's fairly common. You just kind of, it, well, it's like we talked about in some other episodes where it's like, yeah, you know, you just speak this language in the courts and you speak this other language with your family. And so, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I didn't think about it that way. Was it, tan- was it a, when we talked about Tanzania, I think it was that way that they have you know, multiple languages. Oh yeah, like one about. for school. For yeah, home. yeah, that yeah. makes sense. But that's By really the way, fun. the 
Oh yeah. Uh-huh. I was just gonna say that's that's an interesting thing that you would include in, like you said, in a national anthem. If you've got eleven um, languages in your country, you'd have to either pick one or do what they did here, which I think is a cooler option, and just include all. Of them. I think that's a nice way of paying respects to that. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the name of the national anthem of South Africa, by the way, it's commonly referred to in by its osa name and i'm not going to try and do justice to the click languages words here i can't pronounce these words but uh, happily for me the official title of the anthem of south africa is simply just called national anthem of south africa (laughs) that's what it's officially called on the books so um but yeah i do would like to learn how to pronounce these words and also because that seems neat yeah um yeah i mean it's a weird idea right to have a song that everybody knows in the country and you're singing it as kind of a way to get people together and everything it it makes sense to me yeah and um there's kind of a maybe a sense of camaraderie about knowing the national anthem and everybody being able to sing it and things like that for sure yeah it's it's an idea that is isn't weird until you think about it and like you just don't take it as a given that oh yeah we have this song that's our country song yeah it's like yeah now that when you start stop and think about it it's like oh yeah that that is really strange like I remember learning um in world history that um in like Roman times when the different gladiators or whatever would fight then they'd have like their their games and stuff they would just be like colors so it was like oh yeah we have like a red team and a blue team and a green team and a yellow team and you just picked which team you want and it's like well that seems super arbitrary like why would you pick yellow over green but then Mm -hmm. it's like we do that all the time with like sports teams like people people get killed over that stuff like you wear the wrong jersey in the wrong place and it's like this is all just you know we're just all kind of coming up with it and so the national anthem sort of the same thing like it could have been a turned out that all countries decided to do a song but we could have just been like colors like america is light purple <laughs> yeah but we didn't do that we're like we're gonna do songs now you know yeah that's interesting um it it makes me wonder too like if there are songs that everybody knows that don't require as much intervention from the government like mm. I, there's probably other songs that you could immediately call on a group of people to start singing and they would all know you know like yeah mary had a little lamb is a children's <laughs> song but you know other folk songs maybe for adults or maybe even like pop songs from the radio like call me maybe doesn't everybody know call me maybe you know that could be the unofficial uh, unofficial national anthem yeah who knows yeah that's a fun idea like what if if this song if you know you're not gone yeah yeah or like spiritually what's the national anthem what is the song that the most people know and could sing there's probably a there's probably a song that wins that award but what is it you know yeah actually give me a second i want to think about that for the united states hmm like, I'm trying Would to think it be about... like a amazing? Yeah, that's a strong one. Like I'm also a hymn? Thinking, I bet, yeah, I bet you could get a pop song too. I bet we could think of a, a pop, pop song, song that, like, yeah. that like anybody from like an like a hey, old. Dude. Yeah, maybe <laughs> or like a, yeah, 
we built this city on rock and roll. Everybody <laughs> knows that terrible song. I'm starting a country and the anthem is we built we this built city. <laughs> oh. That's kind of that's a little provocative thought. I'm gonna I'm gonna stew on that one. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the question that I think I mentioned on the podcast before about a course, a, a literature course I took where the professor asked, what's the book that everyone in our culture has in common? That yeah, everybody's read yeah. and everybody it's like a shared idea in our brains. And yeah, same idea, a song. I'll have to think about that. Maybe add it in as a footnote. I thought maybe like Shenandoah or Danny Boy, those may be a little bit older i guess but yeah. you know for folk songs back in the day why didn't shenandoah get picked actually shenandoah did get picked for virginia's national or virginia's oh. state song um go. but i don't know yeah like other folk hymns that aren't necessarily children's songs because i think you know everybody just kind of knows children's music yeah does your daughter sing uh, mary had a little lamb just yet yeah, she knows Mary had a little lamb. Row, row, row your the right boat. Right <laughs> your boat, yeah. <laughs> baby shark. Oh, baby that's shark. A, the hey, new that's, that's a great argument for that. That is a new national anthem. That's like a new world anthem. <laughs> Everybody has heard baby shark. <laughs> well, speaking from my new job, I now work in the music charts industry. Yeah. And I can tell you that baby shark is seriously at the top of the charts and it has held that position for a while. I absolutely believe that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, so my wife and I made a concerted effort to like, we decided this baby is going to like the music that we like, that we play. And so yeah. if we just don't play any terrible kids music for her, then she'll never yeah. heard it, right? And so we made a very like, scheduled attack on her musical senses and it started with John Denver and um, Simon and Garfunkel and like kind of some nice e older easy listening stuff because it's it's really calm right so you can listen to it to go to yeah. bed or it can be like a lullaby there's some really great Simon and Garfunkel songs um, and so we we had a plan and then the first time she heard Baby Shark it was like it was like I mean it was like coffee, like w woke her up in the morning and she's like, what is this? And so now we're, now we're a blended household with, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and Baby Shark. So however you feel about national anthems, ours has um, an interesting history. And it all started with the War of 1812, or as I like to call it, um, the American Revolution Part Two, basically. I always think about that as like the British being like all... Uh, all angsty that they didn't win the first time and so they try again i don't think that's historically accurate but that's how i always think about it um and um the war of 1812 was a conflict between the united states and great britain and just a few years after i mean uh, the united states was a very new country uh the newest in fact at the time but but i mean we we um for instance we um so 1812 i mean we'd, we'd barely been around 30 years uh depending on how you want to you know define been around but we get into a conflict with great britain um along with our the respective allies so the allies of the united states allies of great britain also were mad at each other and fighting um interestingly france was against both parties 
So huh. France was just fighting everybody. Um, this it was also and fighting their own. Thing yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is a very um, a very historic, like a very dense period for wars, <laughs> like the eighteen yeah. teens. There's a lot going on. Um, that I really don't have a great grasp of, but like the Napoleonic Wars and all that stuff was going on right around. Yeah. yeah. And um, significantly, Native Americans, um, tribes were in this period often aligned with either Great Britain or the United States based on promises or land or whatever that they, however they decided what they're, or were, you know, convinced into their allegiances. So there were also Native Americans fighting on both sides for and against um, and it came about largely because of, um, like I said, again, um, English mistreatment of American sailors and blocking of trade stuff, um, trade routes and whatnot. And um, uh, specifically, they would seize these boats and they would um, put into, um, into service as royal sailors, um, guys that they would seize off of boats and a lot of times they were Americans and they would say, no, you don't understand. I'm not a British subject. I'm an American. We've got our own thing going. And the British for, you know, surely a variety of reasons, but at least in some circumstances were like, well, we want, you know, we need more sailors. And so we're going to say, we don't believe you that you're American and you're now in our Navy. And so that wasn't great. And that caused a lot of conflict. Um, and it, this all result, um, you know, came to a head in a, a land war in the United States um, with a, a focus and a concentrated attack on the Capitol, on the United States Capitol. Um, the White House that we have and the Capitol building that we have, um, well, the White House is completely new. The, that, the White House that we have now, it was completely destroyed during the, the War of 1812, was burned to the ground by the British. And the Capitol building was partly destroyed. Um, and so some of it's original. You can go see like the cornerstone that George Washington laid uh, for the first Capitol building, but it was taken over and, um, and partially destroyed by the British. The burning of DC was actually, and, and so they, they specifically burned down buildings, like they targeted the White House, went in and burned it to the ground. And that was actually quite scandalous and shocking to the world, um, including people back home in England. They were kind of, um, you know, upset that, that um, British forces had done that. And it was considered like, pure vandalism and kind of like petty that, okay, so you took DC, you know, you took the city, you didn't have to go burn their, their landmarks, their like important buildings, um, which is again, is why I kind of think of this as like the angsty war. They were like still really mad about what had happened. Um, but in, in all of this, as that was going on, there was um, what is called the battle of Baltimore which was um, an attack on, on what is still a major American city, but at that time was, a, was one of the, the leading American cities and at Baltimore. Baltimore is a port city. And so it's important for many strategic reasons. And it was also just a kind of a hub in, the, um, in this new nation of the United States. Um, fun fact, at the Battle of Baltimore, there was a private who fought during the battle named James Buchanan, who would go on to become the president of the United States which is kind of fun. Um, but the story of the, the writing of the national anthem focuses on September 14th, 1814. So we're um, quite a ways into the war at this point and Baltimore is being um, besieged by the British. And this was mostly a sea battle um, that they hoped to turn into a land battle. So they wanted to, from the sea, attack 
and you know defeat Baltimore and then go into the city and overtake it. Um, Fort McHenry is the name of a fort that sits right on the water, right on the kind of the opening out to the ocean. Um, so it's one of the places you would have to pass. It's on kind of a, a jutting point of land um, that you would have to come in to get into the harbor to enter uh, the city of Baltimore from the sea. Now, the, um, the, the strategy that, was, um, that the British were using was no secret really to the Americans. They knew what was gonna happen. So they actually attempted to sink ships, um, old ships out in the harbor to keep the British ships away or make their way more difficult so that they couldn't get in and bombard the city and all of that. Um, but, but both sides were prepared for this. Um, they knew that this had to happen. The British had to take um, Baltimore if this was um, for their success. And so um, the Battle of Fort McHenry, or the Battle of Baltimore, the, the bombardment of Fort McHenry is basically a 25 hour event. It started in the early morning about 6 a.m. of September 14th, and it lasted till about 7 a.m. the following day. So basically a full day. Um, an interesting thing about this battle was it, it really in some ways came down to the weaponry that, that they had. The British had better long range guns on their boats. Um, the British Navy at this time and for many parts in, uh, throughout the history of the world, uh, the British Navy has kind of been the, the force on the, the, the world's oceans. And this was no exception. The British Navy was something to be very feared in 1814. It was kind of at the height of its power in some ways. And they had very good weapons. Specifically, they had something called Congrave rockets, which if you Google them, they literally just look like bottle rockets, but they're gigantic. And they're designed basically just like bottle rockets. It's just kind of a little tube with a point on the end. And on a huge stick, like we're talking 10, 15 feet long, big pole, mm. And then you'd launch these huge rockets and they'd go and hopefully, if you're lucky, hit whatever you're aiming at. There was also obviously cannons as well. Um, and it's estimated that at least 1,500, somewhere between 1,500 and 1,800 cannonballs were fired over that 24 hours, which if you break that down, you'll realize just how many, <laughs> how much yeah. like ordinance was falling on the city. And that's just um, cannons, that's not including rockets. And the strategy that the British used, which became, was really devastating for Fort McHenry specifically, was they realized, or they knew that, okay, Fort McHenry has these certain cannons. And if we had a military historian, they could probably tell us the name. So forgive me, but they had these certain cannons, you know, and they had this range of, I'm making this number up, but like, you know, 1200 yards. But the British had cannons that could shoot 1400 yards. So the British just backed their ships up 1,300 yards. So they were outside the range of Fort McHenry's weapons, but Fort McHenry was still within their range. So it's sort of like, as you see in cartoons, where the big guy holds the little guy on the top of the head and the little guy's like swinging and just can't hit him. It was just like that. And so the British backed their ships up, this kind of fearsome armada of boats floating outside Baltimore and just pounded the living crap out of Baltimore for 25 hours straight. And um, so that's kind of the setting. And um, then we enter the, um, the main character in some ways, a man named Francis Scott Key. Francis Scott Key was a lawyer, an amateur poet. And at the time of this battle, he was working to negotiate a prisoner exchange. 
Um, and he was the one who eventually wrote the lyrics to um, what is now our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. Interest, um, interesting tie-in, his folk, so Francis Scott Key, that is the, uh, the first two names of Francis Scott Fitzgerald, who wrote The Great Gatsby that we talked about um, to a great extent in a previous episode. And he's a direct relative, a direct descendant of Francis oh. Scott Key, and he was named um, after him. Huh. Yeah. So Francis Scott Key um, is involved in this prisoner exchange. Partially, he was a respected guy. He was a lawyer. But he was also a friend of the guy who was being negotiated for. The man who was being negotiated for was an older um, town doctor, a very well-known and well-liked guy. He was accused of spying on the British, so the British had captured him and took him um, and had him locked away somewhere. And that was something that the, you know, the Americans wanted to figure out because he wasn't really a spy. He was this old guy. He was beloved. And they said, surely we can you know, negotiate a trade. You can let this guy go. And so Francis Scott Key went onto a vessel a British vessel, he you know, um, sailed out um, at the invitation of the British with a man named John Stuart Skinner, who was a, um, an agent, a prisoner exchange agent who worked with the British on this stuff. And so <laughs> they get on this boat, they go out, they're on um, this British Navy ship meeting with some fancy pants, you know, naval um, muckety muck for the British. And they have dinner and this naval commander guy they're meeting with has a buddy there and they're kind of talking about the the attack on baltimore that's forthcoming and they do eventually negotiate for the release of this guy and he, he does get out but it soon became clear that skinner and key wouldn't be allowed to leave the boat because they you know like in the movies they knew too much like you just had dinner with us you heard us talking about mm -hmm. how we're gonna <laughs> attack baltimore and how we're gonna bombard or whatever and I don't know whose fault that was. That seems like a huge oversight. Like, first of all, to have dinner guests the night before a huge battle seems weird. Also to just talk in front of them about all of your plans also seems like a, not a great move. But in any event, that's what happened. And so they said, we're actually gonna keep you on this boat. You will remain our temporary prisoners until the siege is, you know, what you've heard kind of our discussion about is over. So you can't go and tattle on us basically. So that puts Francis Scott Key and John Stuart Skinner in an interesting position of being with the enemy, watching their city get just absolutely annihilated or, you know, just shot at all night. Um, but they were completely safe. So they were in a war zone, but very safe and watching from a battleship, but it was the enemy's battleship. So a very sort of strange situation that they were in. Now, they were floating off the coast um, of Maryland um, and Fort McHenry was in sight. They were watching the bombardment of Fort McHenry and Fort McHenry, the, the flags that flew over Fort McHenry become important. So um, Fort McHenry and many other places at that time and even now had something called a storm flag, which was a small and simple flag that was kept flying just to basically to have a flag. Um, it's tradition and flag code, at least in the United States, says if you're going to have a flag, for instance, flying overnight or when night comes, you either need to take the flag down or you need to have a light on it. Um, a military post, if you ever go by, you know, a military base or even like a post office or whatever, it'll, they'll either take the flag down at night or they'll have a light on it. So there's certain protocols and things mm. like that. There had also been a storm right before this. And so Fort McHenry, as night fell, um, 
on the night of, of the battle of the bombardment, they had their storm flag up. So it was small um, and just kind of there as an official um, symbol that this flat, you know, this fort is an American fort. And I think it's easy to kind of forget the importance of flags in a time before there was like radio <laughs> or anything. So uh, the flag that was flying on a ship or flying over a fort was actually very significant because you had no other way of knowing whose boat that was, right? You didn't really, you couldn't see who's, you know, what ship was coming at you. And that's where we get all these stories about, you know, the pirate flag and stuff and people fleeing in terror once the certain flag goes mm. up the flagpole. And this was a big deal for this fort because as the British were really intent on doing, they were hoping to bomb the crap out of the forts that protected Baltimore and then send troops in once they had softened up those forts and take over the city and first and foremost, take over the forts that were protecting the harbor. And mm -hmm. so um, Francis Scott Key sitting on this boat and I, it also must've been awkward for him like rooting against the people he was with, you know, like, oh, I hope you guys are miss. I hope, <laughs> I don't know what he was saying but that was his strange situation. And as the sun went down, he saw this little battle flag flying and as the rockets um, which are different from cannonballs, right? We often think of cannonballs as like a solid chunk of metal, which typically was, especially at this time, more the case. It was just like a heavy, heavy ball. But these rockets, like I said, were literally bottle rockets. So they'd shoot through the air, leave a stream of fire. And, um, and so you could, you could kind of see by the light of the rockets. So you might kind of already start to see where, where this is going. But by the, by the light of the rockets, he could see, and every time a rocket would go up, um, Francis Scott Key would, was watching to make sure that the American flag was still there. But he knew that as, dar as the night went on and as darkness became um, more deep, he wouldn't be able to know until the morning what the outcome was. And it was very likely that in the morning when the sun came up, the, um, the flag of the enemy, the British Union Jack, would be flying over Fort McHenry and maybe over all of Baltimore. And so... Um, that was his experience that night. And then the next morning, as the sun came up, he saw that not only was the American flag still flying over Fort McHenry, but that they had replaced it not with the storm flag, but with the um, full-size official great big flag. So not only was the flag still there, it was an even bigger flag flying the next morning. And he was so inspired by this that after dawn had broken and he had seen the flag, um, that it was still flying. He took a letter from his pocket and using the back, he wrote the poem down. Um, and then later when he was released by the British, they were allowed to go back into Baltimore. He kind of finished the rest of it after he got back to, uh, to his hotel he was staying at. And that's the experience. And that's the, um, the first verse, like I was saying of, of the national anthem, you can kind of think about hearing the bombs burst in air and, um, that's that first verse is what was Francis Scott Key's experience of, is the flag still there? And um, the second verse that we do not often sing is, um, is the answer to that. So I, I don't think that most people realize that the Star Spangled Banner, the whole first verse is a question. And it is, oh, say, can you see? So basically, hey, everybody, can you see what I'm seeing that this flag is still going? And is it... Um, does the star-spangled banner still wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave? If you go to a baseball game or if you're at a flag raising or whatever, that's what you're going to hear sung. 
and it's an unanswered question. And you will very rarely mm. hear the second verse sung, but the second verse has the answer, and I'll read it for us. So, so again, the first verse ends, um, O say, does the star-spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave? Second verse says this, on the shore dimly seen through the mists of the deep, where the foe's haughty host in dread silence reposes, what is that which the breeze over the towering steep as it fitfully blows, half conceals and half discloses. Now it catches the gleam of the morning's first beam in full glory reflected, now shines in the stream. It is the star-spangled banner. Well, long may it wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. So I'm not surprised that we don't sing more verses to, <laughs> to it because it's a long and, and difficult song. But um, there's so much satisfaction in the second verse that his, his question was answered the next morning as the sun came up that, um, Baltimore hadn't fallen, that the fort had stayed strong, and that um, America had come out victorious. And he didn't have to write all those pretty words. He could have just written, yeah, it's flying. <laughs> right. We did it. The answer is yes. <laughs> he, he, could have had a, he could have had a banner that said mission accomplished, and that would have been <laughs> I have a theory. See if you agree with me on this. My theory is that in the entirety of the first uh, or this whole year, no one in this country has ever used the word spangled if they weren't <laughs> singing the national anthem. I was thinking the exact same thing uh, <laughs> as I was rereading the lyrics in preparation for this. That's one of those words that has a very specific. Um... Everyone has heard it. I don't think anyone has ever used it. No. I even looked up the definition. Do you know what spangled means? I would guess just like be spotted, like covered all over with. Is that yeah, it? And even, even more specific, it's covered with little lights, like little stars maybe or little diamonds or something. Yeah, very, very particular. Yeah. Uh, that's an example of a very a beautiful word. Yeah, it's a very beautiful word. That's an example of one that just has gotten so overtaken in its context. We don't use it, but we should. It has, yeah, huh? yeah. That's it, that reminds me of the word prodigal. That's a beautiful word, but mm. it's so strongly associated with like this context that we never use it anywhere else. And so, prodigal, wasteful. It yeah. even has a meaning that I think yeah. uh, we don't really associate with what people say when when people say prodigal. They may mean like a son who is wayward and now returns or whatever. Yeah, yeah but, I. I wouldn't be surprised. I should look it up. I bet the dictionary definition of prodigal includes now. Maybe like, it does include both. Yeah. It's used to mean wayward. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. That's funny how that works. Yeah. Spangled. I'm going to use spangled this week. <laughs> in another context. That's a good, in a work email. Yeah. Oh, good goal. Yeah. See if you can get it into a work email. <laughs> hey judge, this opinion was really spangled with um beautiful legal citations as was spangled in my previous email <laughs> <laughs> so the star spangled banner as a song uh throughout the 18th or the 19th century became pretty popular cream rises to the top word got around about this great new song and people started playing it at things like independence day celebrations etc it even became the anthem for the Navy in 1899. 
there is a moment during the 1918 World Series of Baseball that they played the Star Spangled Banner. And that was considered to be the first time it was ever played during a baseball game. The practice of playing during every baseball game was something that was started during World War II. See, that's another example of a thing that we just take for granted. But if you think about it, it's like, so we have this song that celebrates our nation and its glory has passed. And so, you know, we sing it on our national day, the 4th of July. And, you know, at baseball games. Every baseball game. Every baseball game. That doesn't make sense. So, you know, like five to ten times a night through every night in the summertime yeah <laughs> yeah it's just funky i don't know uh, and if you asked me i think i would have thought that it was played at like every sports game is it not i think it basketball, is basketball football yeah. i don't know about football but it I is i would say it is really game. strongly associated with baseball though definitely with baseball yeah, yeah everyone knows standing up for the opening pitch etc um so in 1918 some congressmen introduced a bill to officially recognize the star-spangled banner as the national anthem remember this is like a hundred years after many national anthems of europe and latin america had already been created and we still still didn't have one his bill did not get passed it got rejected and ripley's believe it or not in 1929 published a cartoon saying, believe it or not, America has no national anthem. In 1930, there was another petition that went around trying to get this song recognized as the national anthem. Lots of people signed the petition. Um, That same day, two people went to present this in front of the United States House Committee on the whole thing. And they argued that... um, the song may be too difficult for like a regular person to sing. And so these two ladies in particular got called to this committee to refute that idea. And I think they sang it right. Just to like test the waters and see like, Hey, is this something that people could sing? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So they're saying their hearts out. I I think I actually may agree with that idea, by the way, it's quite a difficult song and, you know, that there's a reason they always get very good singers to sing it for national events. No, I um, definitely agree. I mean, it's it's very complex, especially for something that's going to get sung at every baseball game. <laughs> I think it's harder than something like La Marseillaise, right? Which is right. just kind of easy to yell, you know, da 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 Everyone can yell along with that. Yeah. Or like... Yeah, um, and one of the like unofficial anthems for a long time was um, America. Um, like there, there were a few, and you could. Think oh, America the Beautiful. Yeah, America the Beautiful. Think that could that could be our national anthem, and it's much easier to sing. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's shorter. You don't have to remember as many words, and right. they're not like poetic words. The Star Spangled Banner is just so elaborate, like poetically. Yeah. Yeah, very uh, almost like purple prose. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Um, Long story short, we did get the national anthem eventually. Star Spangled Banner got passed by President Herbert Hoover in 1931, right after the stock market crash of 929, I guess. They were pretty concerned about our national anthem, and he signed it in as the national anthem of the United States of America. Um, 
And I do think that it's interesting, like you brought up, that there are actually four verses to this thing. And I knew that, but I didn't really think about that those are official verses. Like if you're going to look up the official text of the national anthem, you would see all four verses, not just the first one, as is commonly more sung. Right. Um, I think it's completely bonkers that it wasn't official until 1931. Totally. That see, I would never have guessed that before yeah. I learned about this. I would have said that it was. I mean, you would have think that we would have had a national anthem during the Civil War or even World War One, but we didn't. No. Yeah. And that's that's, that's really interesting. Wild. Think, yeah. There was no rousing song to get everybody excited, or maybe there was, and we don't know what that song was, but it well, doesn't yeah, seem like I mean, it. It's from the little bit of reading that I've read. So like my country tis of thee was a really popular one. There was also um, a song called hail Columbia, which was kind of an unofficial anthem for a long time. Um, It is now the official entrance march for the vice president of the United States. Oh, Um, And of course, Columbia being like kind of a famous half nickname for the United States. um, Yeah. Based off the idea that Columbus landed here, but I've never heard that song. I looked it up. I'd never seen these lyrics, at least as far as I know, before. And so, yeah, there there were probably like competing ones, but then it's so it's just crazy to me that we settled on this and so late. I mean, that's that's shockingly late. And uh, you mentioned like the wall, the Wall Street crash. What do you think? Do you think there's other reasons? Like, why do you think it finally happened in thirty one? It's funny, like looking at these notes it's like it's almost like it was the unofficial anthem for a long time and people were just like gradually knocking down yeah. the door until eventually it couldn't be stopped you know i don't yeah. know why it took over 30 years but who knows like why <laughs> i don't know why president herbert hoover was the first person to be like we're doing this <laughs> you yeah. know I think but, it's interesting. I, 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 I wonder if like, so there was a very strong wave of nationalism and fascism in Europe that was spreading at this time. And so I wonder if there oh, was like, point. I wonder if the United States felt like kind of an existential threat, like, well, there's all of this, I don't, I don't know, just like upheaval and like the Spanish, um, uh, the Spanish revolution and like when world war one is, is probably even the better example, as we've talked about on the podcast, just like all these nations with these competing interests and things are getting, you know, way more complex than they were when the war of 1812 happened, in my opinion, right? Like the yeah. idea of national identity has really shifted and the world is getting smaller as we, you know, as travel increases and nations are kind of butting up against each other and the, the borders really matter now in ways that maybe they hadn't before. I wonder if that was part of it. And it was like, we have to, we got to, you know, come up with a, a, a team color and a team song really quickly yeah. to like boost morale, you know? I believe that. I think, uh, I, I always think it's interesting trying to imagine like what the sense of self-perception was for America in the past and I remember this uh, college class that I took where we looked at a graph of literary usage of the term, the United States is, yeah, which is a kind of like a 
anti-grammatical thing there because the United States is plural. Why would you use is? And it turns out like in the past, people used to say the United States are, that was much more commonly written down. Yeah. And so the teacher that I had was arguing that that was part of a sense of self-awareness. Like people used to see the United States as a separate group of different states with their own identities and then sometime around after the Civil War is when the language really started to change and people used to say the United States is now. It's like one collective entity yeah. with a solid identity that is much more cohesive. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's again, it's one of those things that you just don't, we don't think about it because it's just such a thing now that it's, yeah. you know, not worth thinking about or it's so lost to us. But yeah, we were... Um, and especially like if you think about the war of 1812, if you go back that far, like it was not a given that this whole experiment was going to last very long. Like it was kind of a miracle we'd won mm-hmm. the revolution in the first place. And then so, yeah, it's just looking back, it's so easy to be like, oh, yeah, we, you know, we made it through all this stuff and we eventually defeated the Nazis. And it's like, but you can't when you're trying to picture yourself in those times, like none of those were a given. They were, we were losing to the Nazis for a long time, like badly. Yeah. And so it's mm-hmm. you, you when you think about that, it's easy to think like, you know, I know how this story ends, but other people didn't. And so, yeah, when the country was like forming and becoming its own self, we, we know the how it ends with a nation that has, you know, an identity and we do things a certain way or whatever, but hasn't always been like that. That's true. So, Tyler, if you could propose another song, like a serious entry so not call me maybe yeah um, not is there another song that you'd pick um another like patriotic song let me think about that my favorite american songs are like americana to me mm-hmm. are shenandoah and deep river i love that song yeah um I don't know that Deep River is maybe rousing enough <laughs> as a national anthem, but I think Shenandoah is, is quite nice and fits with the, uh, you know, the beautiful landscape of the country. Yeah. I, would, I would say one of those. Yeah, I like that. Um, I like the, uh, the egalitarianism of this land is your land. That's a nice one. Oh, that's good. Um, that is nice. Yeah. yeah. I've also always really loved uh, My Country Tis of Thee. That's a nice one um and easier to sing so that would be good too yeah that's a great idea (laughs) there are definitely some americana songs that i'm glad aren't our national anthem i'm thinking of you're a grand old flag (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad that that's not (laughs) that is the truly the little drummer boy of american patriotic music I don't know who thought that they were clever when they wrote that thing, but no, thank you. Yeah. And uh, hail to the chief. You know, if we had to sing hail to the chief every time we we're at a baseball game, I would just lose my mind <laughs> just because the tune is so ballistic. It's like, yeah, I don't even know what this is. Yeah. When, when like I hail to the chief feels very tuba forward to me. <laughs> Hail to the Chief is, let me see if I have this right, is it, 
No, that's that's a different one. That's yeah, three cheers for the red, white, and blue. Yes. Yes. Same goes for both of those. And three cheers for the red, white, and blue. Right. Yeah, that's uh, tuba forward is would not be my my preferred posture for this. Um, what about um, Yankee Doodle? Yankee Doodle. Oh that boy, been, yeah. That... Yankee Doodle is old, isn't it? Yeah, I feel like that is genuinely an old song around the time of the American Revolution. It, oh yeah, it, it certainly is, and I that would um, that actually might be a good example of one that like we were saying that kind of is a collective song that everybody knows. I bet that's that, a great example. Yeah. I bet, a, I bet most little kids could sing you Yankee doodle. Yeah. It's funny how things have staying power. Like why on earth has Yankee doodle lasted another, you know, hail Columbia hasn't. So, so. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? So my, my last question or the, the one that I've been thinking about is, so national songs, as we've said, are just a thing that we now all accept. But why couldn't we have had like national dances? Why couldn't there be like, all right, the basketball game is about to start. Now we're all going to do the dance of America. And there's just like, <laughs> like the robot or something. And everyone just does it's it all the together. whip. And... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that makes almost as much sense as a national song. And if we just go yeah. with that, then that would be the normal thing. You know, we had everybody... You know, during the Olympics, America would be up there doing the robot and, you know, Mexico <laughs> would be breakdancing or whatever. And it would just be. Arguably, it's, um, I would suggest that system. it's. Yeah, I would suggest that it's more intimidating. You know, if you're going into battle and you're doing yeah. the dance or you are showing up to the Olympics and your right. team is all doing this dance together. I don't yeah, know. I, I think it would play. work. Well, it's it's like the uh, like the haka. It's like Hanukkah. Yeah, that's a great yeah. example, actually, of like a national dance. Yeah, that's really, really is. I mean, I'm sure New Zealand and, and those other kind of island nations have a national anthem, but the Hakka has that place for them, right? Like it's the, and it's cool. Yeah, it's not like John Philip Sousa march. It's all right. When you're like, yeah, it's like, Tyler, you need to, we're going to lobby for a national dance. Some kind of cool thing. People actually would look at a video of someone doing the haka, but I don't know anybody who's going out there on Spotify to listen to your grand old flag. I'm sorry <laughs> if anyone, if that's your favorite song, but <laughs> maybe I'm not that sorry about it. Well, when you're president, my vote is for the robot. Okay, I'll take that into consideration. Now for some footnotes. I'll quickly share my favorite War of 1812 story, and yeah, I do have a favorite War of 1812 story, and it involves Dolly Madison, one of our coolest first ladies. President James Madison was off doing the things that a president does when a nation is at war, and Dolly stayed back at the White House. When word came that the British were intent on taking the capital city, James wrote to Dolly telling her to evacuate when the authorities said it was time. Dolly did not want to go. When the British troops were literally in the streets of D.C., Dolly knew she had to leave, but before she would retreat, she demanded that the portrait of George Washington, the father of the young country and a man she had known personally, be taken down from its place in the White House and smuggled out of the city. 
She guessed, correctly, that the British would have little respect for the White House and she wouldn't see Washington's portrait disgraced. The famous portrait of George Washington that you are almost certainly picturing in your mind was painted by famous artist Gilbert Stuart, and it was saved from the flames by Dolly Madison's quick thinking. Some versions of this story also include the idea that Dolly Madison actually stood in the White House until the British soldiers arrived and she looked them in the eyes as the house passed from her possession to theirs. Now that last detail is not verified in the historical record, but it would definitely be in my film adaptation of this story. Next, our discussion of the National Anthem wouldn't be complete without acknowledging the many men and women who have used the playing of the National Anthem as a time to voice protest and discontent. If you're picturing Colin Kaepernick, you're right, but the tradition is much older than that. Before it was even our National Anthem, U.S. citizens during World War I would refuse to stand for the Star-Spangled Banner in protest of the military draft. They viewed it as an unconscionable invasion of personal liberties and chose to express this by not standing during the anthem. Other notable instances include numerous protests during the Vietnam era and the famous Black Power salute at the 1968 Mexico Games by Tommy Smith and John Carlos, where both athletes wore black gloves and raised their fists in what they later called a salute to human rights. You might remember that an image of this moment, a poster, is a plot point in the classic Disney football film Remember the Titans. And just a few days before this episode was released, a young athlete named Gwen Berry, who had just qualified for the U.S. Olympic team, made news by facing the other direction during the anthem. Citizens throughout American history have and will continue to take the playing of the anthem, this moment of recognition and celebration of the United States, to highlight what they see as shortcomings in that very nation. If you want my two cents, and that's all it is, any nation whose watchword is freedom had better be prepared for its citizens to use that freedom to challenge and question the government. I say the American flag wouldn't be worth saluting if it didn't stand for the idea that you can protest and let your voice be heard. So while I will be standing for the American flag this 4th of July, I would defend with my life the right of any American to kneel, sit, or turn away from the flag and the anthem. What would be the point if they couldn't do that? Thank you so much for listening. We really enjoy making these episodes and we hope you have a happy and safe Independence Day holiday.